Hey, on to the message. Let me pray again for just a second. Father, uh, all truth is from you. And it's your spirit that makes truth real to us, that opens our hearts so that we can take it in. Lord, that provides the spiritual energy and desire so that when we hear truth, when we take it in, we actually have a will and a desire to make those changes in our life. And Father, I just ask that your spirit would be at work this morning to reveal more of Christ to us and to give us a willingness to see see where we're at with you, the places we need to change, Lord, the the ideas or the motivations of life we need to address. Lord, maybe we just need encouragement, but whatever it is, as Aaron prayed earlier, uh, we entrust ourselves to you, the truth of your word and the scriptures and your spirit this morning. In Jesus' name. One of the regulars in the cast of uh, Christmas characters in uh, American culture today is the movie It's a Wonderful Life. This was a a Frank Capra movie from 1946. And I have done spoilers before in books and movies, and so I'm going to do a spoiler again this morning if you haven't seen the movie. This thing is rerun every Christmas season multiple times. Most of you, how many here have seen the movie? How many here have not seen the movie? Okay, so spoilers, it's coming. So most of you have seen it, and so as I'm talking about elements of this movie, you'll, you'll have those pictures in your mind, you'll have those memories, and apologies to the rest of you as I spoil your first viewing whenever that, that occurs. Um, the title, It's a Wonderful Life, most of you know, it comes from a line near the end of the movie when Clarence, George Bailey's guardian angel, tells him, You know, after having reviewed the impact his life had had on others, you really did have a wonderful life, George. You know, because when the angel comes in, things don't look so good, and he wishes he'd never been born. But the angel says, no, George, you really did have a wonderful life. And this morning, we're going to reflect a little bit on the title of the movie, the movie itself, some of the things that this brings up scripturally as well, I know a movie review is not normal uh, fare for church on a Sunday morning. I'd ask you to bear with me. We will get into some scriptures here near the end. Consider the lengthy illustration if that helps you get through. It is a delightful film, and it provides a chance for us to perhaps do a little bit of inventory ourselves on what we consider a wonderful life. By the way, before I get started or jump in fully... Let me give credit to an article called Potterville Nation. This was written by Anthony Esselin in the Christmas edition of Touchstone Magazine in 2008. It's well worth your reading, and he's a very fine writer. I give him credit for the genesis and none of the blame for what I'm about to share with you this morning. So, brief mini version of the story or the elements of the story. George Bailey, he's the eldest of two boys living in the little town of Bedford Falls, somewhere in the northeast United States, not far removed from New York. His father, Peter Bailey, runs the building alone, the Bailey Brothers building alone, in this sleepy little town. And from childhood, George has wanted to live a big life, live largely. George's dream from childhood is to explore the world. It's to get out of Bedford Falls. It's to go out and live a big life and build big things. That's his desire from earliest memory. And though he doesn't want to, as life goes on, he keeps having these decisions foisted upon him. He has these challenges, these crises where he's got to make a decision. And each one of these decisions makes him. 
And he kind of feels like life is forced upon him and his decisions are forced upon him and he ends up living a life he had not desired, for sure. He ends up as an adult running the building and loan uh, that his father had, which he loathed, but he ends up doing that just the same. And in the process of business on Christmas Eve, the inept Uncle Billy loses $8,000 of the Building and Loan Association's money. And this is what throws George and Uncle Billy into the crisis he faces in the movie. And so George is getting ready to end his life. He's going to jump off the bridge into the frosty, cold, freezing river when God sends his guardian angel Clarence to come down and intervene and restore George to bring him back to his sanity. And so I'm just going to work through a few elements of the movie. You guys have a, have a study sheet there. You can write some notes as you care to going along the way. The first thing, covering a little bit about the town of Bedford Falls. I don't know how many of you remember, and if you've seen the, mul- the movie multiple times, I'll bet you still don't remember this, that the movie starts with the people of Bedford Falls praying. That's the start of the movie. And in fact, there is no movie apart from the people of the city and George himself praying. The whole movie is the response to the people in the town praying for George Bailey, their friend. There's no movie without that. The whole thing hinges on people in the town praying. That's the kind of town George is in. And by the way, the original version of the end of this movie was going to be George Bailey on his knees praying the Our Father. Seriously. And as they viewed it or they looked at it, they felt like it lacked a little bit of an emotional punch. And so that's why we have the, the end scene that we do today. But the movie begins with the people of the town praying for their friend George Bailey. They know he's in trouble. They're not sure of all the particulars. But the whole movie hinges on the fact that this is a town in which people pray. And George himself, of course, prays out to God during the movie as well. You think of guys in the... In, uh, Bedford Falls, the sleepy town of Bedford Falls. Bert and Ernie, you know, made famous later and their uh, reconstituted versions on Sesame Street. But Bert and Ernie, their names come from this movie. Uh, Bert, the policeman, Ernie, the taxi driver, you know, they're just decent guys. They're loving husbands. They're friendly to the people in the town they serve or drive around. They're, that's the kind of people that fill the town of Bedford Falls. Uh, George's father, Peter Bailey, is this really noble, quiet guy who all his life is cooped up in a small office, he says, because he wants to give people in this town the opportunity to have decent places to live. His existence in this town is not related to himself or what he can get. It's just so other people in the town can have a decent place to live. Peter Bailey, his father, and he's willing to put up with all the insults of the evil Mr. Potter in order to serve the people of the town. It's interesting, too, if you watch this movie carefully, there's a plaque on the wall under Peter Bailey's portrait in a scene later in the movie. And if you pause, you can actually read it. And the little thing on the wall says under his, under his picture, all you can take with you is what you've given away. So that's Peter Bailey. That's the guy that helps people in the town get into some decent housing. So Bedford Falls is this sleepy, friendly sort of place. It's idealized in the film, no doubt. But it's the place most of us, if we saw today, we'd say, wow, what a great place to live. Sort of my idea, not of heaven on earth, but maybe of the potential of a real community on the earth that we'd be glad to be in. 
So you've got many in the town, they're noble, they aspire to something good, they pray, their lives at least are focused on prayer to God when someone's in trouble, that's what they're doing. That's the town of Bedford Falls. If you look at the life of George Bailey, he's this happy-go-lucky kid, you know, uh, probably like a lot of uh, guys here maybe we're growing up. You know, has big dreams for the future. He's going to be a national explorer, you know. And life is full of potential, and he's easygoing and affable, and he loves and he respects his father. He tries to do the right thing to those around him. And it's interesting, I don't know if you've ever considered this, and Eslin points this out in his article, but all the decisions, because you remember when Clarence sees the life of George Bailey as he's growing up, all the decisions that George has to make, all these crises or temptations that enter his life, he makes the right decision, the, the best decision in each of them. But you know, every time he does, it costs him something dearly. Every one of these decisions that he looks back on at the end of his life, and God says, you have the approval of heaven on that, they actually cost George something dearly every time he passes this test. So here's a few of them. When he saves baby brother from drowning, he loses the hearing in one of his ears. He gets cold, gets an infection, loses the hearing in one of his ears, but he saves his brother. Or later, <clears throat> excuse me, when he's still a child and he's working for Mr. Gower, the pharmacist or the druggist, he prevents Mr. Gower from poisoning a boy with the wrong stuff, medicine. And what does he get for it when he comes back? Mr. Gower beats him around the head and on his bad ear starts, starts bleeding. That's what he gets for doing the right thing for Mr. Gower. When he marries his wife Mary, he gives up his hopes of traveling the world. And when George and Mary get married, they save the building and loan when the Great Depression starts by taking their wad of money that was for their honeymoon and their new life together, and they spend it all on the people that represent the Building and Loan Association to save them. They lay down their honeymoon and their savings for everyone else there. It costs them again. Later, he refuses a deal with the devil. You know, Potter says, I realize I'm licked, and I'm going to offer you a job, and he offers him a lucrative contract for three years, and George is sitting there in the chair with a cigar in his mouth and his hand, and he's, you know, he's thinking, I'm going to make this much money, ten times in one year what I make in a year, three years minimum. I'm going to, I can live in the best house. I can buy my wife and children all the things that they want or that I want. We can visit New York. We can have better vacations travel to Europe, etc. And he realizes he regains his sanity before he leaves the office and realizes he can't do it. See, he could sell out and he could get all that stuff for himself and his family, but he regains his sanity and he can't do it. He gives up all that that he could have enjoyed and his family could have enjoyed, but he gives it all up to remain true to the people of Bedford Falls and to be there for them and their needs instead of his own. George makes a place for the inept Uncle Billy and the savings and loan. And, of course, it's Uncle Billy's forgetfulness. You know, the guy with the strings on his fingers so he won't forget the things he forgets. It's his forgetfulness, of course, that brings the crises in the film and puts George in the way of trouble all along. George picks up the pieces for his younger brother, Harry. Do you remember they were going to trade places and Harry's going to pay George's way through school just as George had paid Harry's way through school and... Boy, a better deal comes along, and so Harry goes off. He gets out of Bedford Falls. He lives George's dream. 
He's successful in college. He's successful in sports. He's got a great job. And then he's a war hero in the end. And instead of envying him, George lauds him, loves him, you know, celebrates his achievements. He doesn't live in envy, even though his brother got the things he had wanted. In part, at his expense, he didn't. So George's wonderful life is based on self-sacrifice, on putting the needs of others first, seeing the good of others over his own welfare. That's George Bailey. And that's Bedford Falls. So contrast those, the individual and the town, with the variation on the theme. The town of Bedford Falls is transformed into Pottersville when Clarence the Angel gives George his wish and George's existence is wiped from the earth. It's as if he never existed. And without George's self-sacrificing presence in Bedford Falls, it degenerates into Potterville. So listen to some of the things about Potterville. There's no Bailey Park. There's no little subdivision where there's all these nice little homes for these families to live in because George wasn't there to pick up the pieces after his dad died. There's not only not a subdivision, there's a cemetery there instead. It's not the place for the living, it's the place for the dead. Uh, Violet, uh, perhaps the greatest transformation of an individual in the film. Do you remember Violet in the movie? Uh, this cute little blonde girl in the soda shop, and then later she's kind of this demure, down-on-her-luck young gal. But in Potterville, she's this crazed, maniacal woman being arrested out of the dance hall. Life changed drastically. Uh, compare the visions of Main Street in Potterville versus Bedford Falls. When you go down the street of Potterville, they're filled with pool halls, nightclubs and strip joints that's Potterville and it's not the Bijou Theater I thought this was quaint this playing the bells of St. Mary that was Bedford Falls it's not the family store the Emporium and there's no building alone Potterville is the the kind of place you and I generally would avoid at night and Mary George's wife is no longer this vibrant loving wife and mother of four but she's an old maid, Clarence calls her. She's hiding her life in the stacks at the public library. Not at all the same person she was in George's existence. So that's a little bit about Potterville. And then if you look at Henry Potter, I was tickled this morning. Someone came up with great enthusiasm, a young person, because I was teaching on Harry Potter this morning. They'd seen the teaching. And for the life of me, I thought, what? And I, and I, I said, I know I'm going to let him down. I said, Sir, guys, I'm not. And I have no idea what you're talking about until I looked at the teaching insert again. Henry Potter. No relation. Henry Potter. So Henry Potter, the, the other guy, the other guy. Henry Potter is confined to a wheelchair throughout the film, whatever age he is, with or without George. And it appears that he's trying to overwhelm the impotence of his legs with power through money and possessions and the control of other people's lives. That's all that he's interested in, whether George is there or not. Potter loves nothing and no one but himself and his money. If you remember, there's a scene in his office, George remarks, you're a frustrated man, sick in your mind and your soul, you hate everyone 
who has anything you can't have. That's Potter. People, Mr. Potter says, hate me, and so I hate them back. And so that leaves everything even. That's his view of life. That's Potter versus George Bailey. Now, just a couple observations on Potterville and Potter, starting with Potter. Potter was a curmudgeon, for sure, but you know he didn't break any laws. Now, he keeps some money that was mistakenly given to him, but it's not, you don't see in the movie that he's a lawbreaker. He's a businessman, and we assume generally through the life of the film that he's doing things legally. It's not that he's breaking the law. He's doing things legally within the law. He's like Ebenezer Scrooge in Dickens' It's a Christmas Carol. You never think in Scrooge that he's a lawbreaker. He's a businessman. He just has no morals or ethics towards others that would inform the way he practices business. But Potter's not a lawbreaker. He's totally within the law. Potter is a lot like those indicted in Isaiah 5 verse 8. You know, because something's legal doesn't mean it's moral. Because we can do a thing doesn't mean we should do a thing in business or other things. In Isaiah 5.8, God said this, Woe to those who add house to house and join field to field until there's no more room so that you have to live alone in the midst of the land. In Isaiah's day, people were legally within the law. They were buying houses and property from people who probably had no other resource, no other way to get out of debt or who knows what. And they were making McMansions. And they were adding field to field. And the poor, those who needed some help, could get none. And they were the victims instead of those who, through the law, legally, were simply buying them up, buying them out. That's just like Potter. You know, this thing goes on today. I totally believe in capitalism as the best vehicle financially for accommodating the best for the most people. I'd argue it's the biblical norm. You look at the law, it's the biblical norm. But it's possible, even within the best model, to use people and situations and money in such a way that is immoral, that's an affront to God. And that's what you see there. And that's what we've seen, by the way, in the last 10 years, maybe 15 years, in which revelations about business corruption... Sometimes it's not that laws were broken, though sometimes it was. Sometimes it's people operating within the law making millions of dollars from other people who've lost their life savings. But the people on top are still walking away with pockets full of money. It's like Isaiah 5. That's Potter, operating within the law at the expense of others whom you should be serving but aren't. Listen to uh, Anthony Esselin. He writes uh, concerning Potterville in the article I mentioned earlier. He says this, We hate Mr. Potter, but we sure do like Potterville. What is the town like when its ruling spirit is the universal wolf of avarice? Not simply the desire to hoard up money, but rather the desire to have, have, have. Big houses, glitzy bars, Strong drink, lots of customers, hot sex, a fancy nameplate on the desk, diplomas on the wall, expense accounts, designer children, importance. We see it in that nightmare time when George is led by the angel who shows him what would have been without him, which is nothing less than the loss of community itself. That is, if everyone is a potter, there is no potential for community 
because it's every person for themselves. He says, we don't like Potter. We look at him and we say, oh, no, he's the bad guy. But we love Potterville. It's pretty much where we live, I think. Listen to this from the Wikipedia article on this movie. They were nice enough to include some, some quotes from film critics, both when the movie came out, they were mixed. And the film didn't do that well, by the way, when it came out. It was a clerical glitch on a copyright renewal that allowed the film to be shown as much as it has that it became a classic, which I think is providential, rather interesting. Uh, but the film was not that successful when it came out, and the reviews of the film were mixed, as they were in hindsight. So this is Wendell Jameson in the New York Times 2008 piece on It's a Wonderful Life. He says this, It's a Wonderful Life is a terrifying, asphyxiating story about growing up and relinquishing your dreams of seeing your father driven to the grave before his time of living among bitter, small-minded people. It's a story of being trapped, of compromising, of watching others move ahead and away, of becoming so filled with rage that you verbally abuse your children, their teacher, and your oppressively perfect wife. My wife's almost perfect, and I find it not oppressive at all. I don't know. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, His take on Bedford Falls. That's his take. Uh, Listen to this. Rich Cohen from a 2010 Salon.com piece says this, the most terrifying movie ever made. It's a wonderful life. The most terrifying movie ever made. Pottersville is not seeing the world that would exist had he never been born, but rather the world as it does exist in his time and also in ours. Potterville isn't our nightmare. It's reality. It's life as it is. It's life as we know it, said Cohen. Gary Camilla in a Salon.com article from 2001 said this, Pottersville rocks. The Courier and Ives Vale Capra drapes over Bedford Falls has, presented, has, has prevented viewers from grasping what a tiresome and frankly toxic environment it really is. That's the view of critics today. And it was the view of some of the critics when the film was released. Toxic, terrifying, Pottersville rocks. Pottersville is certainly alive and well and living today in the land of the free and the home of the brave. And it is, it is in fact, the desired community, or I would argue anti-community, that many people in our culture and time today desire. So, George Bailey, Bedford Falls, Henry Potter, Pottersville, you know, what, what for us constitutes a wonderful life? If you and I look over our life today where we're at, Uh, maybe yesterday, maybe in the years that have led up to where we're at, or as we look at where we're aiming in the future, how do you know that you've been successful? If someone reviews your life now, if your life is part of a movie, do you look back and say it really was a wonderful life? By what criteria do we determine that we lived life well, that it was a wonderful life, that at the end of the day we say that was a life worth living, that was a person worth knowing? What's the criteria? Where do we go with this? The point of the film and its title, it seems to me at least, was that the way to judge the quality of life was the impact it had on others around you. The impact you've had on the lives of others around you. 
And in fact, you know, in the movie, before George gets help, he's, he's sitting in Martini's bar and he says, Father, I'm not a praying man, but I need your help. And this movie and the view of success in the movie is based on a man humbling himself before God, crying out for help, and a life that was lived for the benefit of others. That's the movie's view of a successful, happy, wonderful life. You know, if you go back in the Old Testament, Micah 6, 8 is a pretty well-known verse. It's sung in a song. That's one of the views, certainly biblically, of what constitutes a wonderful life. Micah 6, 8 says, He's told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. Those are the kinds of things you see in the movie. Now, you, you know, if you read your Bible, if we're Christians, most of us here certainly are, if we look for an example, what does a wonderful life for us look like biblically? What's the biblical example, of course? And you're, you're going to the Gospels and you're reading about the life of Jesus Christ, the God-man who comes down to the earth to live on our behalf, to live for our benefit, to represent heaven to earth. And, you know, you start thinking about Jesus and his view of life. He's the one that comes and says it's, it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. Or he says, I've come... And I'm seeking out those who are lost. I didn't come here for my own comfort. No, I'm coming out to seek and save those who are lost. Or he says, the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So if you go to the Gospels and if you look at the life of Jesus, you see the same thing you see in George Bailey in Bedford Falls. Same thing, that it's about humbly walking before God and then turning around denying myself and trying to live for the benefit of others. That's Jesus' example. It's what he leaves us with. You've got in the, in the movie each one of the decisions that George kind of feels like he's oppressed by. You know, I'm, in the, I'm stuck in this situation. I've got to make a decision. You and I face trials, tests, temptations like this all the time through life. You know, decision comes up. What are we going to do? How are we going to respond? Sometimes those are just decisions, and sometimes they're really temptations. And it's those tests, it's those decisions that we make that really reflect the kind of person we are and what motivates us in life. What do we think makes a wonderful, a successful, a happy life? Those are the criteria by which we're making those decisions. You and I will be tested and we'll face temptations just as George Bailey was in the film, but also just as you see Jesus in the Gospels. So, you know, you go to Luke 4, verses 1 through 13, and you remember the text that Jesus is driven by the Holy Spirit out into the desert. And there he's going to be tested. He's going to go through 40 days, 40 days of fasting. And when he's at his weakest point, Satan shows up to tempt him. Just like George Bailey in the film, there's this temptation... Potter's offering this temptation. Will you sell out? And Satan shows up to Jesus there in the desert and says, Hey, you're hungry. And there's no food around, but there are some rocks. You know, why don't you just make one of those into a loaf of bread? Now, there's nothing wrong with eating bread. And certainly later, Jesus eats again. No problem with that. But at the time he knew that's not what God wanted him to do. And so he quotes the scripture and he says, no, you know, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. 
And it goes on. There's two more key temptations. And the temptations were specifically fit to Jesus. So Jesus is the creator of the heavens and the earth. He's the ultimate ruler. And so Satan offers him, hey, you know, if you'll bow down and worship me, a little thing, it'll take you just a second. I'll give you the kingdoms of the earth and everything in them. You know, Jesus, he's the son of man. He's the one who will future have those anyway. But he could get them early if he'll just do one little thing. Just take a second. You know, no, he says, you'll worship the Lord your God and him alone. You know, or Jesus, you don't look very kingly. You don't look very messianic. Why don't you throw yourself off the top of that temple just to make sure that you're really who you said you were. You know, verify yourself. Validate your own claims. No, Jesus says, you know, don't tempt the Lord your God. Before Jesus begins his ministry, he faces these key temptations. You know, what will motivate him? In whose, in, in whose name and for whose sake will he live his life here on the earth? And he passes the temptations, those tests, because he was here to do the Father's will and to give his life a ransom for many. He was here, he was here sounds familiar, he doesn't. He was here to love God through obedience, and then he was here to love his fellow man through his sacrifice on the cross. So, you know, you go to the Gospels and you look at Jesus' view of a wonderful life, it's those two things. It's the upward look, I'm obeying my Father. It's the outward look, I'm serving those around me. If you go to Mark 10, there's a great passage. Uh, you know, the disciples, uh, Stan was talking to Mosaic this morning. He was talking about keeping it real. You know, don't pretend you're something you're not. Keep it real with those around you. And I thought it's a great message, you know, to Christians, especially at all times, because we tend to want to put on a veneer. We're better than we really are. You know, we're, we're not as sinful as we really are. You know, we want to we cover up. We want to make people think that we're better than we are or less bad than they might think us otherwise. Uh, you know, when you read the Scriptures, God does not coat anyone or anything. He just tells it like it is. So in Mark 10, James and his brother John, these are the two, two of the 12 apostles. These are the best of the best, sort of, right? You know, but they go to Jesus and they say, Hey, Lord, when you're in that kingdom of yours, when you're sitting on that glorious throne, we just have a little request. We want to sit one on your left and one on your right. Now, Henry Potter is their, is their example for this. They're really saying, Lord, we want as much as we can get. Just give us the best and then keep it coming. You know, because when Jesus is in his kingdom and he's on his glorious throne to sit on his left and his right, that means you're the two second and third most important people in the kingdom. So James and John, they're not holding anything back. Lord, this is all we ask. Just make us the most important people in your kingdom. And you know, the, the other ten, they're like, what are you guys doing? What are you saying, Lord? Can you believe these guys? And so Jesus responds and he says, verses 43 through 45, whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. James and John, do you want to be great? Then serve. Be serving those around you. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's Jesus' view of a successful life, of a wonderful life. Living for the sake of others under God's leadership. Living for the sake of others. For Christ's followers, if you're a Christian, a wonderful life is a life devoted to honoring God and living sacrificially on earth just as Jesus did. You know, going back to the movie for just a second, it is important to remember 
that in the movie, the decisions George Bailey makes, they really do cost him something. It's not that they're token losses. They're real losses. And when you and I make choices to serve others in Christ's name, it's often at great expense to us. And I don't want to minimize this. It's a big deal. But even in the film, you see this theme that what George gave away, his willingness to serve others at his cost, actually becomes the foundation from which his life as described as wonderful. He gains the things money can't buy. He gains the friendship of others he wouldn't have if he had been living for himself. Clarence leaves in the book and says, no man is poor who has friends. Well, he had friends because he lived for the sake of others. You know, when you revisit the film, you see it costs George on one hand, but the cost of his wonderful life, that's the foundation of it too. What did it cost me? That's why my life was wonderful. Now, in Isaiah 53, there's a great illustration of this. And you guys know Isaiah 52 and 53 are gruesome passages in the Old Testament, but they, as vividly as anything in the Scriptures do, they talk about the Messiah. And in this context, Messiah is the suffering servant. And the suffering servant was the one who was going to come in God's name, Yahweh's name, but he wasn't going to be the glorious king. He was going to be this suffering servant. And Isaiah 52 and 53 describe his suffering and his torment. He's marred more than any man. But you know, the end of Isaiah 53 says that it's on his suffering, it's on what he loses, upon which is based all of his future glory and gain. I think we lose sight of that. Listen to this. The last three verses there in Isaiah 53, uh, Yahweh was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Now, if you remember earlier in Isaiah 53, it says that the servant is cut off in the midst of life. He's cut off as a young man. He's not old. He doesn't live a full life. He's cut off in his prime and he has no children. The, the text says, who can describe his generation? It means he has no posterity. He has no descendants to follow him. If you were a Jew in the Old Testament, to not have your name carried on to future generations through your descendants, you were cursed. Messiah was cut off. He had no descendants. And yet, what does God say after he gives himself up? It says he will see his seed. He will see offspring. He really gave them up. He really was cut off. And yet, the thing he lost in his death, God gives him in his resurrection. He has children. In fact, it's interesting, when you read Isaiah 54, the analogy switches, but when it talks about more numerous are the children of the barren woman than the woman who is born, it's an illustration of Messiah. The one who had no children when he died, he has multitudes of children after his death. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see and be satisfied. You know, Jesus on the cross my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus left by the Father, loses all, and yet now it says he's going to see and be satisfied on the cross. Everything is lost. 
In the resurrection, everything is gain. The crucifixion and his death becomes the, the foundation of his future blessing and glory. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. He will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty or the treasure with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. You see, the suffering servant is a picture of losing everything for God's sake and others and getting it all back multiplied times over. You know, we, we are tempted when we face our temptations and the decisions in life that end up making us, we're tempted to say, I want that. I'm going to grab for it. I'm going to make it my own. And sometimes we know God is saying that's not for you. Or it's not for you now. Trust me with this thing. And this is the beauty. The more we give up, the more we lose for Christ, at the end of the day, if not in time, in eternity, the more we gain. You could look like a loser on earth and yet heaven would review your life in Christ's name, in Christ's cause and say, that was a wonderful life. That was a successful life. On the other hand, you could be a potter in this life, you could have everything the world has to offer, and heaven can look back over your life and say, loser, 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 you've lost it all. Just like the rich guy who builds more barns but has no consideration for God or those around him. Can you imagine, go back 2,000 years, you know, in the film... George goes back and sees what life would be like in his absence. In his absence. Never existed what would life look like. Can you imagine what life here on earth would look like if Jesus had never been born? If the incarnation had never occurred 2,000 years ago? What would life on the earth look like without his presence, without his incarnation, death, and resurrection? And the spirit that he left in the church to represent him on the earth. You know, it's easy to uh, take shots at the church, broadly called, for sure. You know, if you look at the, the history of the church, I mean, it, it's horrendous at times, whether you're thinking now or you're going back a few years or hundreds of years or whatever. There's lots to take shots at, absolutely. But can you imagine the world today without the presence of the Holy Spirit and the effect and the witness of the church through the ages? Guys, most of what we call the goodness of life in the world has some tie directly or indirectly to Jesus' presence on the earth and the effect of the church, the Holy Spirit, God's presence in the earth through the church. This world would be the full-blown, unmitigated version of Potterville without the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection, and Jesus leaving his spirit in the church today. It would be hard to imagine what life would be like today, sort of the Potterville times 10 or times 100 or to the 10th power or whatever. You know, many, uh, briefly as an aside, some people think the verse in 2 Thessalonians that talks about the removal of a person or a personage from the earth is what opens the, the end time for this full-blown corruption on the earth. That, that the church and the Holy Spirit in the church being removed is what provides the open door for sort of the earth to become that full-blown version of Potterville. 
But can you imagine if Jesus had not come, if he hadn't left his spirit in the church, what would life on this earth be like? It would, it would be hard to fathom. It would, not, it would not be a good thing. I don't think any of us would look at it and say that's what we're after. As we contemplate the incarnation, we're in the, the midst of the Christmas season already. Ask yourself this question, maybe now or maybe later. If I got George Bailey's wish, if I could look back over the earth without my presence, what would the difference be? What would the difference be? If I had never existed, would there be any real loss to the world in which I had otherwise grown up in? What effect are you and I having on the world around us? Family, friends, students, people at work, people in our neighborhood. If I'd never been born Lord, would the world be a poorer place? Would my absence be meaningful in the world around me? If my absence would not be significant, I've probably got to ask myself the question, Lord, am I living for you? And am I living for the benefit of others? It would be hard not to have an impact on the world around us if we're living for Christ and living for the benefit of others sacrificially. And those are the questions asked. Am I, when I'm facing these tests, these decisions, these temptations, these trials, Am I making decisions based on, Lord, I want to obey you, I want to love you, and I want to serve those around me? Is it all about me? Am I a potter? Or is it about God and serving others? Am I a George Bailey? Or ultimately, am I walking in the steps of Jesus himself? What would the impact on the world be in my loss? Also, am I investing in the church in such a way that the church is more fully the presence of Christ on the earth God means it to be? You know, it's really easy, and most Christians, I think, tend to minimize their investment in the church. It goes something like this, I'm not that important, I don't have these great charismatic gifts. It really doesn't matter if I plug in in the church or not. And so by little shades, by little bits, the church is less and less the entity on earth God means it to be because we tend to underestimate the impact one life can have on another. And it wouldn't matter in what ways we do that. If we're serving others in Christ's name in the church, the church is more the presence on earth God means it to be because all of us participate. And to refuse to embrace that model, Jesus' model to serve others, you're not only, we not only rob ourselves, we rob the church. We're living less than a wonderful life. You know also, how about our absence in the community around us? Uh, is, is Topeka, is Auburn, or the communities we live in today, are they a better place for our presence? You know, is, is the community we live in a little bit more of Bedford Falls and Heaven, or is it more of Pottersville based on our presence in it? There's a limited amount of things we can do in the, in the greater community, the non-Christian world in which we live, for sure. You know, politics and our investment in businesses or, or our neighborhoods. Those things have a limited value at one hand, but there's an awful lot that we can do within that limited value in the community. There's an awful lot we can do. So is the community we live in, is it better for our presence? Are we serving the community we live in, in Christ's name, serving those folks around us or not? 
This movie was a great reminder to me. It's one of my wife's favorite movies. And I, as I was watching it again this week, just to get some of the details down, just struck again. You know, what constitutes a wonderful life? In the eyes of heaven, are you and I living a wonderful life? Are we living a life based on heaven's criteria or our own? Are we bringing a little bit of heaven with us where we're at? Or is Potterville the norm? We're choosing every day. Let's pray. Father, uh, movies, uh, stories, fiction, real life, literature, Lord, uh, biographies, all of these are uh, helpful, but it's words of truth from the Bible that ultimately tell us the things you want us to know. And, and Lord, in the life of your Son, we see full-blown the kind of life you call wonderful or successful. This life lived, Lord, under your rule and authority, lived for your honor and your glory, Lord, lived for the sake or the benefit of others. God, would you stir us up by your Spirit so that we are uncomfortable Lord, living less than that kind of a life, would you help us to aspire to nobleness and to greatness, Lord, as Jesus did by laying our life down in your name and in your cause and for the benefit of those around us. And Lord, this Christmas season, would you help us as we're considering gifts and parties, get-togethers with family and friends, would you help us enter each of these, Lord, with the question, God, how can I honor you here and how can I bless those around me? In Jesus' name, amen.